From KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Phil Marriage, and this is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Now in our 20th year on the air, and we remain the only program on radio today dedicated to the preservation of comparative generational thought. So let me welcome you to the crossroads of history. According to the 2016 birth rate statistics for Arkansas alone, there are approximately 1,140 children born each year with birth defects. That's our topic today with my guest from UAMS, Dr. Paul Wendell. We had one ultrasound machine for 18,000 deliveries. Today, we have four ultrasounds per clinic, and everybody gets an ultrasound. Dr. Whit Hall? When I first started private pediatric practice, children with Down syndrome were shoveled off to a home, and the parents never saw them again. And Dr. Wendy Nimhard? My generation, those have been exposed to the possibilities of what people with birth defects can do. It's a discussion we need to have, and we'll begin right after the news. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow as we begin our 20th year on the air. If you Google birth defects, this is what you'll see first. In quotes, every four and a half minutes, a baby is born with a birth defect in the United States. That means nearly 120,000 babies are affected by birth defects each year. Birth defects are structural changes present at birth that can affect almost any part or parts of the body. End quote. In that same four and a half minutes, 33 babies are born from the statistics of the national, um, um, from the statistics for the annual birth rate. So 3% are born with defects and 97% are normal births. Maybe that's why most of us develop a blind eye to the impact of birth defects those 120,000 children must face over their lifetime. It's also birth. What is it? This this is the week. Uh, January is National Birth Defects Prevention Month. Okay, and this is all. And January is also uh, na- National Birth Defects Prevention Month. And January is also is National Birth Defects Month. I d- didn't have that in there, but I'm glad you told me about that. To bring it closer to home, Little Rock and North Little Rock have about 1,140 children born each year with birth defects. So about three every day. Hopefully, this generational discussion will raise awareness of and empathy for those children and now adults who live with birth defects. Are those statistics close? Yeah, we quote everybody, uh, every pregnant patient has a 1% to 2% chance of having a birth defect of some degree. Some degree. That's, that's, I, I thought they were pretty close, but I, I just wanted to make sure. My generational guests joining me here in studio are... From the older generation is Dr. Whit Hall. He's a professor of neonatology in the UAMS College of Medicine, who also was medical director of the UAMS Intensive Care Nursery for 15 years. He has resided on the March of Dimes Executive Board and Grant Committee since 1994. He's also dedicated time to the organization's public services and perinatal advisory committees and to promoting its advocacy mission. Dr. Hall has served in other areas of the community, including on the boards of the UAMS Family Home, UAMS Parents and Friends of Children and Adults, and Ronald McDonald House, and as president of the Arkansas Chapter of American Diabetes Association. So, Dr. Hall, glad to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. I'm a big fan of public radio and KUAR. Well, good. That's good to hear. Uh, also from the middle generation is Dr. Paul Wendell. He came to UAMS in 1994. He is a professor and maternal fetal medicine specialist in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Dr. Wendell has been awarded numerous Red Sash Teaching Awards, CREOG National Faculty Awards for Excellence in Medical Education, and has been elected by his peers at for inclusion in Best Doctors in America for several years in a row. Dr. Wendell, glad you're here, too. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, too. And then speaking from the younger generation is Dr. Wendy Nimhard. She is Associate Professor and Department Chair of Epidemiology in the Faye W. Bozeman College of Public Health at UAMS. She is also Director of the Arkansas Center for Birth Defects Research and Prevention. She was the Director of the Arkansas Reproductive Health Monitoring System. Her research interests include adverse perinatal outcomes, including birth defects, fetal and infant mortality, preterm birth and low birth weight, racial slash ethnic disparities in perinatal outcomes, 
long-term outcomes in children born with birth defects and fetal origins in adult chronic diseases. We have a terrific panel. I, that's a long introduction for these guys, but they've worked hard in what they do, and I wanted to make sure you could hear everything that they've been doing. So I'm really glad you're here too, Dr. Nimhard. I began the program today with those statistics about birth defects because those of us who are in the 97% population who don't have birth defects impacting our lives are not very aware of the range of defects revolving around us. So for all the generations, I'll start with you, Dr. Hall, and the older generation. How aware has your generation been of the impact of birth defects and, and society's attitudes about birth defects over, from your period of time? Phil, that's a great question. You know, when I was Wendy's age, we were not very aware of birth defects and not very aware of how common they are. And Further, we really didn't understand how much they could impact a person over their lifetime. And many of the things that we now know that are caused by genetic defects, we now know can either be prevented or even treated with genetic therapy. So uh, from our generation standpoint, we didn't really think much about it. We thought it was just something that some people had. And probably a typical example of that would be trisomy 21 or Down syndrome. Typically in my generation, when I first started private practice, private pediatric practice, children with Down syndrome were shoveled off to some sort of a home where they were cared for and the parents really never saw them again. That is not the case anymore. In when, fact, did that, when did that change? That I think that changed really in the 1970s and, and early 80s is when that changed. And now we treat children that have trisomy 21 or Down syndrome pretty much like we do other children. And that would include even doing aggressive therapies such as uh, heart-lung bypass on their neonates if they happen to have a disease that needs that, which we did not do previously. So we operate on these children if they need it to correct their defects. We give them aggressive therapy that we never used to give. And further, we now provide excellent education and understand the educational needs of these children and they're virtually always incorporated into the family home and into the classroom. So that has been a huge change that I've seen over my generation, and I have to say it's a welcome change. You were saying about the kids come into the classrooms now when they didn't before? Sure. Uh, they're what we call mainstreamed into mm -hmm. the classroom. And so a child that is Rhodes Scholar can be in a classroom with a child with uh, trisomy 21. And so, you know, we have to adjust our educational needs to these children, but certainly these children are treated much better, in, in my opinion. And some of that has been brought about by television. You know, there were some television programs that, that had to do with trisomy 21 or Down syndrome. And uh, I think they've raised not only awareness, but I think they've also increased the empathy for that. Empathy is a good word. You and I both went to grade school and high school in the up to the 60s or so, or somewhere in that time. What was the, the uh, society's attitude about birth defects then? I, from my perspective, it wasn't all that great. Dr. Wendell, uh, moving up into your time frame, because you're not in the 70s like we are. <laughs> I graduated from high school in the 70s, in 1977. Well, it, it's interesting. Um, so I hit um, the world of birth defects when ultrasound in obstetrics hit. Uh, when I was an intern at a large public hospital in Dallas, a, a hospital called Parkland Hospital, we had one ultrasound machine for 18,000 deliveries. Today at UAMS, we have four ultrasounds per clinic, and everybody uses them, and everybody gets an ultrasound. Maybe only 10% of patients got an ultrasound when I was a very early physician. And so the, the advent of ultrasound has changed the world of what we call prenatal diagnosis and the world of birth defects because when Witt was first doing this, he's a pediatrician and an early neonatologist, you found out about the birth defect on the birth date. We now know about birth defects in utero. And some of them are still lethal conditions in that when the baby is born, 
with a very serious birth defect like anencephaly. In fact, I saw one just 30 minutes ago in my clinic. That is not going to change. We're not going to change the outcome of that. Now, we do do much better care of the patient and palliative care and care of the mother and preparation and that sort of thing. And it's not a surprise. And families can be there and it'd be a much more humane delivery and a much more humane quality of life in the first hours or minutes, days. But other forms of birth defects, for instance, heart defects, which has been one of the major, major um, areas that we've made great strides in, we can identify that heart unusually, being unusual in its development at 18 weeks in utero, halfway through the pregnancy, get all these teams all set and ready to go such that then that baby is born in the golden hour of medicine, that hour right after delivery. That baby we hand off in very specialty care to Dr. Hall. That's what he does as a neonatologist. We time everything to go perfectly. And that baby can have undergo surgical repair with literally within hours, if not within 24 hours, and achieve normal life and reproductive life. Those children, these young girls that we deliver who have these heart defects are now becoming our pregnant patients, and they have their own unique sets of birth defect issues of which my um, colleague to my left here, that's what she studies, you know, the rates of these, who gets them, who's at risk for them. And once you get one, now that birth line, that genetic code is passed on, and those kids of those parents will be at an increased risk. And that's what I do as a living is assess them, tell them their risks, counsel them, prenatal diagnosis, so that if we have something unusual, it's never a surprise. Surprises in medicine aren't good, um, and so we like to limit the time that something's a surprise. And if it is unusual, we have these things called um, uh, levels of care and, and regionalization of care, such that a baby with a birth defect that has some life-altering facets to it be not born in maybe a small town like down in Crossit or McGee, but really gets delivered up here in Little Rock at UAMS, um, where then we have a team and we hand off, and then this baby gets this multifaceted um, care for the best possible outcomes. And then, so now these babies that used to be those kids in your classroom that got pushed off, mm -hmm. now they're getting care from day one, they're getting mainstreamed earlier. They're getting brought in. They're getting occupational, physical therapy, developmental um, uh, help along the way, such that then when they do hit kindergarten and the classroom at kindergarten, first, second grade, they can do as well intellectually, and their physical limitations are met, such that they can do all the same things as our, as our quote, our, our, you know, I hate to say our normal kids. Well, it's the kids without birth defects. Yeah. So because what's normal now? You know, that's. It's kids who either have them or don't have them. That doesn't mean you're normal. It's somebody's yeah. different. And so the societal difference for your time was pretty much markedly different than Dr. Yes. Hall's time. Yeah. So I, you know, I while I I did know those because as a young young boy and families that had somebody who had a birth defect in it, it certainly was different, and we knew about it. But um, I probably didn't grow up in the same um, early part where kids were kind of shipped off to homes, but I did yeah. know about it through yeah. study. And, yeah. But I, I don't see that today, luckily. Well, Dr. Nimhard, bringing in that younger perspective and the work that you do there at UMS, what's your perspective on the, the birth defects that you see? It's, it's really nice to be somewhere where I'm the younger generation. First of all, <laughs> that's, that's fabulous. But I think one of the greatest changes uh, and comparatively to the other two that have already been described is that my generation, those after me, have been exposed to the possibilities of what people with birth defects can do. So, for example, in my generation, we grew up with seeing an actor who had Down syndrome on a famous TV show, Life Goes On. And that sort of widened our perspective of what people with disabilities or health challenges can do. And so before that, that was never possible to see somebody functioning in society, having a career as an actor in Hollywood, being showcased on a show, being shown living life and falling in love and doing all these 
other things. Before that, it was they were different. They were odd. They could, you know, all the different stereotypes that went with that. So I think for my generation, those afterwards, we saw the possibilities that. And so now there are famous golfers, that young lady who played golf with McElroy just a few months ago. So the limits, I think, have been taken off to some degree of what people with birth defects can do, what their trajectories can and the possibilities. But we also, on the other hand, are more aware of what some of the long-term challenges are because we have been able to follow up people who have these challenges and where before people would just repair things and just say, okay, go off and have a wonderful life and we'll see you someday. Now we understand that sometimes during adolescence and, and life uh, as in adulthood, now that they're surviving into adulthood, there are special challenges that they do face. There are medical problems that need to be addressed that they may not even be aware of. People with Down syndrome are now living into their 60s and their 70s, and now we know that they have challenges with Alzheimer's and things like that. And so other birth defects, now that they've been uh, surgical advances that help promote longevity, there's also the challenge of now what does that mean in terms of other things when you have hypertension and you're aging, uh, what are those risks? So there's benefits in terms of the possibilities of getting older and what you can do in your lifetime, but there's also the challenges of what does growing older mean for somebody who has health challenges, whatever they may be, whether they're genetic or structural. When I was a kid, you, you'd had somebody with birth defect, mainly the Down syndrome, you'd, you'd see that they were kind of shunned, but the ones who were hardest on them were the kids around them. Is that still the case, even with the younger ones coming up now, that their peer group is still kind of tough on them, or are they even better than they used to be? I think it's mixed. You hear a lot about bullying, yeah. and bullying happens to children without birth defects quite a lot, and then also children who are different, whether it's autism or an external birth defect that can be seen. So I think it's mixed in terms of people's experiences, but I think with more education and more awareness that different doesn't mean abnormal or bad, that it just means different. I mm -hmm. think that there's there's hope with a lot of anti-bullying and promotion of acceptance. A question I have for all three of you is, what are the common birth defects. Now, Dr. Hall, you and I had, had mainly seen uh, cleft palate, I think, was probably the one I saw the most. Are there other common, common ones that, are, uh, that are, were then and have moved on? Or let me start with you. Sure. I think that's a great question. And I think it kind of depends on how you define birth defects. And I think Dr. Imhard mentioned previously about uh, autism and Asperger's. Uh, we now know that that's relatively common, and that also has a huge genetic component to it. We know that other diseases, for example, that may not be readily apparent, such as diabetes, again, have a big genetic component to them. So those two are much more common, for example, than trisomy 21 or Down syndrome or some of the ones that may be more more obvious to a casual observer. So we're seeing there are a lot more birth defects probably than that one or two percent. The one or two percent probably encompasses the birth defects that are obvious, such as the chromosome problems. But there are many more kinds of defects, and I hesitate to call them defects. I really prefer to call them differences because, and, and I think Dr. Nimhard described it well, we now like to think of that as being, for example, a child with Asperger's syndrome, rather than call them as having a birth defect or being abnormal, they're just atypical. They have atypical neurology, and we know that the genetics of that, it's very clear that there's a huge genetic component to those defects. So I think that we have to think about how people are different we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg when we look at trisomy 21. Would you say it's fair to say that Dr. Wendell mentioned that there were things that they can see with technology now? I think it's fair to say that children with birth defects when you and I were younger that weren't real obvious like cleft palate, they just died. Oh, there's no question about it. Some of the minor defects that we see and certainly some of the chromosomal defects, they all died early. Now we know, for example, with trisomy 21 as well as the other trisomies, the other chromosomal abnormalities, there are huge variations in how people present and how people respond. Even defects that are very, very severe can oftentimes not be complete defects, and they can only be partial defects. And as a consequence, they're 
manifestations of those trisomies or those chromosomal defects are different. You know, Phil, we're all different in one way or another. I like the idea of saying that we're seeing differences, and the differences that we see are probably much more common than we previously thought. That was something I never thought about when I was Dr. Nimhard's age or Dr. Wendell's age, really. That's something that's come along recently that, that, that we've seen. You would have seen children die right away, pretty much, from these kind of birth defects that... Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, children, for example, a, a common abdominal defect is a condition that we call gastroschisis, where the bowel is outside of the abdomen. We don't really know why... Uh, unless Dr. Nimhart has uh, figured this out. Uh, but for some reason, that defect is increasing. Previously, when we did not have the technology for what we call TPN or hyperalimentation, and, and although we did when I was just starting, it was very rudimentary, and many of these children, in fact, most of these children, died basically of malnutrition and infection. Now the survival is 95-plus percent of children with this particular mm -hmm. defect. And that's a huge change in our technology and our ability to care for these children. Mm -hmm. So when you speak of birth defects from your reference frames, it's the kids who had something different about them that was obvious because yes. of the behavior or developmental. Mm -hmm. But there are a ton of minor birth defects that you don't even know about. The most common birth defect is a two-vessel umbilical cord. A what? And yet a two-vessel umbilical cord. There's usually three vessels. But when the baby is delivered, we cut the cord off. And so that goes away. But that's a that's a birth defect. It has some potential oh. associations. But so that one just simply goes away. No one ever knew that existed. You mean, but then there's so they have two belly buttons? Well, no, that's the vessels in the belly oh, button. Oh, okay. Okay, so but there's other things where babies are born with a fifth sixth digit. That's a birth defect. There's babies that are born with fused fingers, toes. Those are birth defects, but you'd never know that. And then these uh, babies that are born with abdominal wall defects, we call them central midline defects. Right now, we hand that baby off to Dr. Whithall and his surgical team at Children's Hospital. That baby gets repaired. Everything gets pushed back in there. The baby spends some time in the hospital. If everything goes beautifully, that's the extent of that baby's birth defect for the rest of its life. So those are sort of the minor birth defects. Cleft lip and cleft palate, too, are today what we would call minor birth defects. In the past, those were major, bigger problems because they weren't surgically corrected, and they would um, affect feeding, and those babies would be small and not do well. And then, you know, in third-world countries, they, they do poorly. Here, that baby gets repaired early in life. Its feeding goes better. Those kids go on. They have normal speech. They You can maybe pick out a young young kid that had a repair. So that birth defect is now almost to the point where it has very little social stigma to it. Mm -hmm. Then there's other more significant birth defects, neural tube defects. Again, neural tube defects, those babies were born and had lots of problems. Some of them didn't survive past infancy. Today, our baby's born with neural tube. We're doing intrauterine repairs where we'll go in the uterus prior to delivery, do a surgical repair of that baby's spine and the skin, and then those babies have the potential to be born normal with much better neurologic outcome. So the gamut of birth defects is just wide, and, and I can tell you through doing ultrasounds, nobody comes in and we tell them when we say, we see a difference. Do they ever, it's life changing to them at that moment. But then what we do is we have this program at UAMS called the Arkansas Fetal Diagnosis and Management Program, where we have this team of people descend on them and say, okay, here's what it is. Here's the implications. Here's what we can fix. Here's what we can alter. Here's what we can change in this baby's early lifetime that will make it so much better. And so these minor and, and sort of lesser known birth defects that we can fix surgically and repair, these kids go on to very normal lives. Then you still talk about the major birth defects. Down syndrome, we don't have a fix for that. That's a chromosomal genetic thing. The structural things, sometimes we can fix, almost always we can fix. Enzyme and things where babies are born, birth, don't forget that birth defects are not all physical. 
birth defects can be biochemical such that certain genes are not made and babies are born. So cystic fibrosis is a birth defect. It, the babies are born without an enzyme package to digest food, enzymes to, to um, help protect the mucus in the body. That's a birth defect. But now we have enzyme replacement therapy so that these kids go on. A baby with cystic fibrosis, when Dr. Hall was a young pediatrician, had a life expectancy, maybe 12. Most of them didn't make it out of puberty. Is that probably correct? That's correct. Yeah, today. Most of them died before age 20. Yeah, mm. and today I'm taking care of patients who have cystic fibrosis who are pregnant giving birth to their babies. And so then there's still these major birth defects of heart defects or dwarfism. Babies are born with significant things in their hearts such that they'll require you know heart transplant immediately to survive. So there's this whole gamut. And so what you, the age that you grew up in, the birth defects that existed were these major things. And yet there's a whole area of birth defects that's out there that you don't even know that the kid in the classroom next to your, your, your best friend's kid, they were born with a birth defect, but they were able to be surgically repaired, enzyme, enzyme replacement, or whatever the case may be, and they're living normal lives today. So it's really quite interesting that... We're really just touching on the tip of the iceberg yeah. when you think about birth defects. So major birth defect has become middle of the road, minor. Middle of the road now. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know those that uh, <laughs> when your kids got school physicals, they were looking for listening for murmurs in their mm-hmm. heart because that was a birth defect. Well, we can identify that now such that most of those school physicals aren't necessary for that anymore because we knew about them in utero, and then they followed them right away when those kids are born. Well, Dr. Nimhard, you uh, kind of hesitated there. What's up? Okay, so my job is classification. You know, epidemiologists classify things. So we're going we're gonna to do it from the epi perspective. Okay. okay so I'm going to do slightly different from what they told you. So if we're talking about structural birth defects, which is what you defined earlier, then the most common birth defect is a, are heart defects. By far, 1% of all live births have a heart defect. And then the second most common are cleft lip with or without cleft palate. So that's the second most common birth defect, then Down syndrome, and then um, neural and then uh, neural tube defects, which are spina bifida and encephaly. So that's if you're just counting how many babies are born with things that that's that's the usually the order that of things in the world of like how does autism and all those other things fit into that? Well, that's usually those are birth defects, but those are usually considered developmental disabilities because it's not something that is structurally wrong or something we can get in there and fix or mediator there's nothing that um and it's more of an intellectual capacity type challenge so those are categorized in a different column so when we talk about birth defects usually people are not lumping in autism or asperger's into that category so for people who are listening who might be wondering well why isn't autism in that list that's why because it's usually in a different category of developmental disabilities and then things like sickle cell or thalassemia or things that you screen with newborn screening that's usually not lumped into a birth defects, even though they are, because you're born with a metabolic disorder, like Dr. Wendell was saying. It's usually not rolled up into birth defects because that's considered a metabolic disorder. So, so that's why if people are th- listening and thinking, well, how come that's not in there and that's pretty common, hemophilia and other things like that, that's why it's stuck in that category. So when we're talking about birth defects, it's usually things that have structural or genetic causes. In that category. So that's the answer for the what are the most common birth defects. And so when we get into major and minor, Dr. Wendell and, and Dr. Uh, Hall were absolutely right. There are varying severities of birth defects when, when babies are born. Um, but usually from the epi perspective, not from the clinical perspective, we lump major in anything that requires repair or has significant impact on the baby's life, functioning or can cause um, mortality. So Things like oral clefts, cleft lip, with or without palate, we still consider major because even though they are repaired, long-term studies are showing that there are some issues that arise later on in life. So so there isn't just fix and go and you're done. So it does have an impact on, for example, self-esteem. It can have impact on different levels of cognitive functioning and executive function and different things like that later on in life. We don't understand all the reasons why those things occur, but we from the epi perspective and the research perspective, we still classify clefts as major. From the clinical perspective, 
they're absolutely right. It's a very easily repaired defect for the mm-hmm. most part, depending on the severity of it. And the babies do quite well in Western countries that have the capacity to do the repairs. It sounds like there is a difference between genetic birth defects and malformation-type birth defects. Am I asking that question correct? Yeah, at least in, as an obstetrician would look at this. And we would look at a, a baby or fetus in utero, and a birth defect is something is missing, something is structurally different, something is genetically altered, and we can, through various different things. A malformation would be something that's different in the fetus because of the environment in the fetus. Let's take, for instance, the most common malformation that we'll see will be um, a mom who has decreased amniotic fluid or absent amniotic fluid, and the subsequent malformation would be club feet or contracted extremities where you might get the legs, the knees bent the opposite direction or a flattened facies or um, hands and arms that are not in the right position because the baby didn't have the ability to move in utero because the amniotic fluid was decreased. And so that's what we would call a malformation in that the structure and everything that's there, the bones and the muscles and the ligaments and tendons and the nerves all exist. They've just been pushed out of position because of something in the uterus. And so that's sort of the distinction we make between structural birth defect and malformation. Birth defects tend to come from either um, an environmental issue, a genetic issue, or some effect uh, we actually come from teratogens, which are medicines, drugs. And those are the sort of the categories that we lump them into. And then malformations are come from a condition in the uterus, compression from a big fibroid, compression from lack of amniotic fluid, or lungs that don't work well because of lack of amniotic fluid and development. So that's, that's how I see that Right, because that, that's how it affects my world. Would mm-hmm. you agree with that, Rick? I, I agree totally. The only thing I would add to that is one of the other major causes is infection, particularly viral infection. Sure. Yep. Uh, uh, Cytomegalovirus or CMV, for example, we know very commonly affects the hearing. It can also affect a baby's brain development, so that babies have malformed brains. And probably one of the most significant recent uh, discoveries has been that of the Zika virus that many people have probably heard of, and that can certainly cause huge changes in brain development. One of the things that is probably well known and people that are out there listening now, Dr. Wendell mentioned teratogens or substances that can affect the brain development. Probably one of the most common, if not the most common teratogen that we deal with is alcohol. And it's very important, for example, that mothers uh, who are pregnant do not drink because we now know that alcohol can cause huge changes in brain development. How much alcohol? Well, that's a great question. (laughs) uh, There are some people, for example, that can take only a small amount of alcohol and their babies will be significantly affected. Others can drink quite heavily and their babies will either not be affected or be very minimally affected. And it makes a difference in the gestational age, the trimester that the mother's in. Almost everything from fetal standpoints, the earlier and the longer the fetus is exposed to a teratogen, an environmental toxin of some sort, the longer it's exposed and the younger it's exposed as it's developing, the greater the effects. For instance, our mothers who, are, who, who drink in pregnancy, if they did it throughout the first trimester, the chance of fetal alcohol syndrome is quite high, in mm-hmm. fact, very scary. And yet later on in pregnancy in the third trimester in the final weeks, almost no effect. Sort of the neurotransmitter, the brains, everything. Structurally, you can't change a fetus once the structure exists. Yeah. Then you alter its neurotransmitters and how the brain functions, and that's how that affects it. So that's more developmental than structural. Well, how does the fetal alcohol baby begin life? What are they up against? So to, just to tag on to what they said before I answer your question, and the type of alcohol matters, right? So it's hard to answer the question of how much mm. alcohol matters because 
beer versus wine versus spirits versus, you know, so the type of alcohol and the uh, content of the alcohol uh, varies significantly. So women can binge drink on beer versus taking three shots of vodka. You know, what is the amount uh, that will confer the the greatest risk Mm -hmm. for the baby? There's Mm -hmm. a lot of debate about that, but we do know that alcohol, nothing good comes from drinking alcohol during pregnancy. So if you are concerned or worried about that, the answer is just don't. But what does the baby face? Uh, So the baby faces significant problems because the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, as it uh, indicates, is a wide spectrum where it could actually cause uh, structural changes in the facial features, much like if you can think of somebody you know with Down syndrome and how their face so facial features are, are um, strikingly different. Um, it's the same thing with a baby with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Some of those babies are strikingly different in their facial appearance, um, flattened nose, different things about their face. And then we also know that intellectually, they have a lot of difficulty processing And so there are a lot of cognitive challenges, and sometimes their behavior can be similar to those of children with autism. So sometimes people aren't can misunderstand that a child that's displaying certain behaviors, they just assume it might be autism or some some similar type of uh, developmental disability. And but really, it's fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Mm In fact, uh, Dr. Ken Jones out of UC- University of California, San Diego, has uh, pioneered that work. And he and his colleagues there have actually shown that a lot of people who are currently incarcerated have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in some degree or others because one of the characteristics is an inability to feel empathy and an inability to um, understand consequences. Mm-hmm. And so um, you can imagine that that particular type of individual can commit various types of crimes and have no empathy towards the victim and be repeat offenders because they don't really comprehend why they're being punished um, or having disciplinary action taken against them. So it can be a quite severe outcomes for those individuals. I'm going to address it more from the effect of meth is a highly addictive drug that when you talk to anybody who's used meth, they said, if you use it once, you're hooked. What we see on a much greater percentage is that it's the activity around the meth that causes the greater problem. A, once somebody starts using meth, they need more of it. And as they need more of it, their life becomes very disordered. And as their life becomes disordered, they make bad decisions. As they make bad decisions, they don't seek medical care. They have multiple partners. They have to start selling sex to buy more meth which then gets them into sexually transmitted diseases, risks of preterm labor, abuse, and that sort of thing. So that's a spiral downhill on their social life, which then affects the pregnancy and rates of prematurity and that sort of thing. But the other thing it does is it destroys their heart, and it um, leads to high blood pressure, and it leads to combative wild behavior, and we get these patients brought in restrained um, because they're – erratic, terrible behavior, and then that leads to preterm labor, and then we can't adapt to the patient and get them to respond because they're, as the quote phrase, they're strung out on meth. And then finally, there's the patient who has what has so far into meth that their hygiene, their nutrition, their teeth are terrible. And from teeth and nutrition and hygiene being terrible, it increases the risk of infections which increases the risk of prematurity, which increases the risk of then handing a small growth-restricted baby to Dr. Hall in the nursery, and you'd say, well, the mother's been on meth. So did the meth do this? Um, It's hard to now say what all this interplay of all these factors. So we don't really know that there's a meth sort of malformation or meth birth defect, but we know what the meth mother looks like who produces the premature, very growth-restricted baby. Do those babies tend to die? No, not at all. In fact, one of the things that we have a really hard time figuring out, is it the drug itself or is it the lifestyle, as Dr. Wendell alluded to, that causes damage, that damages the, the unborn child and therefore causes problems in the newborn period? Now, it's interesting that 
methamphetamines and cocaine, while they have severe effects on the mother, they oftentimes have very minor effects on the newborn. And these drugs are probably the most dangerous because they're associated with high incidences of child abuse and sexual abuse and, and physical abuse for their babies. It's really hard to know. We are involved right now in a study looking at opiates and trying to figure out what are the specific effects of the opiates versus what are the effects of the lifestyle from somebody who is using opiates in as part of their you know as part of their lifestyle which one causes the effects on the child we used to think that for example that methamphetamine and cocaine both cause a condition called necrotizing enterocolitis which is a big long doctor word which just means lack of blood flow to the baby's bowel. And so we would hold these babies without anything to eat or drink for three to five days and give them IV fluids that provided their protein and and nutrition. We now know that that's not the case. We've changed that. Now, the other thing that I just want to say that's different about alcohol in my generation, we used to treat preterm labor with alcohol. <laughs> we would actually treat the mother really? with alcohol until she got a little drunk. <laughs> so, uh, and we give it IV. Uh, really? Yeah, yeah, what a trip. Uh, oh, wow. So, uh, you know, so, so we do that. I, I think one of the most interesting aspects of medicine that we're looking at is, is how do we differentiate the effects of the lifestyle of the mother? Now, having said that, I'm going to hand that over to Dr. Emhart because That's what she does for a living, and she has a lot more insight into that than I do. Your turn. What they've described is is actually very spot on, and the effects of meth for the mom also include uh, increased risk of preeclampsia, and uh, the whole host of just adverse pregnancy outcomes for the mom is just very long. So using meth during pregnancy is just not good for in any case for the mom or for the baby. And so far, the studies have not really shown that there is a methamphetamine birth defect syndrome or a particular defect that's associated with meth. Now, the the challenge of that, as Dr. Hall said, is it's how do you separate the effects of the lifestyle versus the drug itself? Either way, there hasn't been any particular defect or a constellation of defects that have been identified. So as of this moment, and this could change tomorrow, but as of this moment, we don't see anything associated with um, increasing the risk of birth defects among meth users. But there are ways to separate out the effects of the lifestyle versus the drug itself, the way we can design those studies. But it's, it's the challenge with a lot of addiction research is there are other, usually people become addicted for a whole host of other reasons, and they're not just using one drug. They're often drinking alcohol, smoking, and um, using a variety of other substances. And is it is it that particular substance that's the problem, or is it all the other things that they're doing in addition? I had a OBGYN said at one point, I'm just happy if the mom's doing one of the long list, because usually they're doing alcohol, and they're smoking, and they're doing marijuana, and they're doing meth, and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're. So if you find one who's just doing one, you're just sort of relieved, right? Because <laughs> you can address the one. Because people, again, they're using all these things for a reason. They have maybe perhaps underlying mental health issues that they're self-medicating or a variety of things in their family situation that's driving them to do this. So it's they're often complicated in and of themselves. So it's it's a challenging situation all the way around for the mother. And then when a baby's born into that complicated situation, you can imagine that their outcomes are not going to be good, even without a birth, even mm-hmm. if they don't have a birth defect. Well, the question that comes to my mind is, are you seeing a lot of that? Yes, way more than we would like to admit. We are one of the larger states in the nation with meth issues because we're very rural, and you can get the things easily, and you can be out and away and... Um, uh, we hate to admit that we are one of the leaders in the country of meth use in pregnancy. So it goes in this triumvirate of poor education, poor nutrition, poor poverty, lack of education, 
that all breeds meth use. Well, let me ask the question in a different way then. If you have 10 patients come in, is there a good chance that there'd be one, two, three, or none? Uh, you know, the, the hard part is that we all practice in different parts of this state. And, and so UAMS um, it, it sort of is the one hospital that has an open door 24 yeah, hours a day right. to all patients, all comers. And, and as you might guess, most meth users are not, do not have an, in, uh, an insurance carrier, tend to have lack of care, lack right. of funds, maybe even not even know they were pregnant. And, and they're not probably going to your average doctor, um, not sitting in the average doctor's office. In fact, most of them are, don't have great prenatal care for a variety of reasons of many of we've touched on. So we are way overrepresented here at UAMS, mm-hmm. way overrepresented in our nursery at Children's Hospital from, from those babies because they tend to be born early. They tend to be born when the mom is sick because the mom doesn't have prenatal care. So we unfortunately see so much more than we'd like to admit, and it's way overrepresented. So from here. a dollars and cents standpoint, it must be very expensive to do, deal with those children. Well, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah, and, and, and yet it's all about prevention, but trying to prevent the ills of society yeah. is um, a multifaceted uh, thing that we're not doing well. Yeah. Well, um, Mental health plays a huge role in that, mm-hmm. as, as, as has already been pointed out. And mental health is an underlying theme that tends to be very prevalent in the addictive patient. Well, Dr. Hall, when you and I were young and there was an old-timey doctor who had his practice for all those years, he probably never saw anything like this, did he? Oh, absolutely not. You know, and you you talk about the incidence. If you look at studies, for example, of opiates, and if you test all mothers, uh, when I say test, you actually do chemical screening to see if they have opiates in their system. It's about 5%. So if you have 10, you'd have to have 20 to have one. But I think that, as Dr. Wendell stated, we, it seems like there are more at UAMS, and part of that is because we, we have an addiction program that is very good. We're very grateful for the people that work with these mothers that have addictions because they have an empathy for this population, and many of these mothers really want to do the, do the right thing. Sadly, several years ago, and this was not true when I was a young physician. There was a big push to be sure that everybody was completely pain-free. And the CDC uh, put out, you know, all kinds of warnings, and then everybody got into the mix, uh, including the Joint Commission that accredits hospitals to be sure that patients were treated appropriately for pain. The phrase was, pain is the sixth vital sign. Oh, really? It was, and so because of that. We just didn't that, want anybody to hurt. And yeah. So we and, and gave out opioids that, like candy, functionally. And so now, you know, so then, you know, if somebody got their tooth pulled or they got a cavity, they may get 20 pills of opiates. And so as a consequence, they would become addicted. And so really, we have to look to ourselves. We have to look to the medical profession that we're a big reason for that. And now, as a medical profession, we've got to backtrack and be careful of the opiates that we prescribe uh, and be careful of the other drugs that we prescribe because we certainly know that if somebody, as others have stated, that if somebody is doing one chemical, they oftentimes are doing doing other Mm -hmm. chemicals as well. There are many things that can be done to prevent birth defects. One of the big things is vitamins, folic acid. That was found several years ago to prevent one of the most serious birth defects that we deal with, neural tube defects, which can be, which can cause anything from paralysis to lack of a brain. And by taking this simple vitamin before pregnancy, it's very important before pregnancy, uh, that can prevent one of the major birth defects. And the other thing, of course, as we discuss, avoid using chemicals of any kind. And then there's medical problems. For instance, out-of-control diabetes can lead to heart defects, neural tube defects, cleft lip and palate. And so the the diabetes for the mother. Out-of-control diabetes for the mother. Can affect the mother. Can 
can, can then lead to birth defects. So, the, really? So the whole point of good prenatal care and preconceptual counseling is mothers who have chronic illnesses or some condition such that they're taking a medicine, for instance, seizure disorder patients who are taking medicines, those medicines, while very good for controlling seizures, are associated with neural tube defects and heart defects. And so what we love to do is meet with them beforehand, discuss the medicines they're on, see that some of the medicines they're on may cause birth defects. Let's get them off them for the first 14 weeks through the development of the structural part of the fetus and then potentially get them on them, potentially get them help in some other area so they don't need to be done. Control their diabetes such that their blood sugar levels are under control, which then decreases significantly the chance of a neural tube defect, a heart defect, cleft lip and pal, all those sorts of things. And then even now, the medicines that mothers are taking for nausea and vomiting, there's some things out there that maybe some of the things that they were taking have a potential to cause some things and say, okay, so let's use those sparingly. Let's not again hand them out like we did because we didn't want moms to be sick. Remember thalidomide? Classic teratogen. That right. opened mm-hmm. the field of teratogenicity because we saw if you gave mothers thalidomide for nausea and vomiting, mm-hmm. what ended up happening, babies were born without limbs. Right. So that was the very classic first one that really opened up Pandora's box. I do hope you've enjoyed this heartfelt generational discussion about birth defects today. I think it's very important to raise awareness of and empathy for those children and now adults who live with birth defects. I do want to thank my guests for being with me here today on this topic. Uh, From the older generation has been Dr. Whit Hall. He's a professor of neonatology at UAMS College of Medicine. He was also the medical director of the UAMS Intensive Care Nursery for 15 years. Dr. Hall, glad you could be with us here today. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And in uh, the middle generation has been uh, Dr. Paul Wendell. He's a professor and maternal fetal medicine specialist in the Department of Obstetrics and, and Gynecology here at UAMS. Dr. Wendell, thanks again for your being Thank here. You, my pleasure. Enjoyed and then speaking in that younger generation has been Dr. Wendy Nimhard, an associate professor and department chair of epidemiology in the Faye W. Bozeman College of Public Health at UAMS. And uh, doctor, in addition to telling you thanks, what was this you were saying about this is? This is National Birth Defects Prevention Month. And where can people get information? You can go to the UAMS website, College of Public Health website, and our center has information about birth defects, a lot of what we talked about today, other organizations within Arkansas. And you can also go to the CDC website, and they have lots of information about birth defects that will be of help to them. Very good. And I do have a very special thanks for to uh, Katrina Dupins from UAMS. She's always been so helpful over the years in locating these great guests, as well as su- suggesting the topics, too. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow is produced for KUAR in partnership with the University of Arkansas, Little Rock. You can find us online and send your comments and suggested topics, if you want, to ytt at kuar.org. Be sure and join us the first Friday of every month at 7 o'clock and Sunday at 9 in the the evening. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month.